Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC in New York, I am Charlie Sykes. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's new live national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. It's interesting being here in New York because I know you were supposed to have this massive blizzard here this week, and you ended up getting, what, uh, three, five, six inches. In Wisconsin, you know what we call that? We call that Tuesday. Well, it's been another week, which means way more stuff than we can really get our heads around. Like, I've assumed, I'm assuming that everybody's seen that video of the guy doing the Skype interview on BBC when his kids come in in the background and the mom tries this uh, epically heroic save. Wall Street Journal tweeted out uh, today that that story about the family was the most clicked on story in the paper's history. Really? <laughs> Trust me, every single person who's ever done one of those home office interviews has been there or, or, or could have been there. The day after that happened, I was actually doing one of those Skype interviews um, in, in my kitchen. Now, my German shepherd lay down next to the chair that I was sitting in and started scratching his private parts very, very, very vigorously. Now, he wasn't actually on camera, so he wouldn't have been there. But because he was leaning up, he's 125 pounds, he's leaning up against the chair. When he starts doing this, I start vibrating wildly. So I really do think that I was uh, probably about 15 seconds away from becoming a YouTube thing which is not my ambition for uh, the, the, the year. Uh, well, again, uh, more news. Just a short while ago, a uh, federal judge in Hawaii issued a uh, injunction, nationwide injunction against uh, Donald Trump, President Trump's revised travel ban. We will get to that. Uh, the president fired all of the remaining U.S. attorneys, which is actually his prerogative, except for the fact that he told one of them, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Manhattan here, uh, Preet Bharara, that he could stay on it's interesting because Preet, as apparently he's known around here, may have known whether uh, President Obama had actually ordered the wiretapping of Trump Tower, because, of course, that's what President Trump tweeted out last week. Now he's saying, well, don't take me literally. Uh, and there's pretty much no evidence at all that ever took place. The wiretapping was was an air quote wiretapping. By the way, this is going to be an, a disadvantage for those of us on the radio here because this air quote presidency, because I can't really do the air quote. I'm doing the air quote thing, but you can't see that I'm actually doing it. So we're at a disadvantage. Big story of the week, of course, uh, problems with the repeal and the replacement of Obamacare. By now, you know this story. CBO projects 14 million fewer Americans will have health insurance um, under the GOP plan. A 20, uh, 24 million won't have it by 2026. So... Um, kind of the perfect storm. Uh, liberals hate it. So apparently do some conservatives. So do moderates in the Senate. And President Trump's, uh, President Trump's friends are telling him to bail on the plan. Well, joining me now is uh, Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. He is the chairman of the Senate Homeland Security Committee. He's also a member of the Senate Committees on Foreign Relations, the Budget, and the Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. And most important of all, he is a fellow cheesehead. Senator Johnson, welcome to Indivisible. Hello, Charlie. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? 
Good. Well, let's start off by getting your reaction. Um, once again, the president's travel ban um, has been blocked by a federal judge. Do you think this travel ban makes America safer? And your reaction to the federal court decision? Well, I don't think the, the federal court decision is going to affect America's security. I, I personally think the president certainly has the authority to do it. When, when we, Congress has given the president of the United States a great deal of authority when it comes to uh, how many refugees are in this country, uh, and obviously when it comes to national security. So I, I think it's dangerous, quite honestly, that we have courts potentially overruling uh, and, and really pushing back on presidential authority to keep this nation safe. Uh, but, you know, th- there is some pr- pretty good vetting going on with that amb- anybody coming from these states, but it's also true that these nations have a real problem in terms of uh, being failed states and not really being able to identify the individuals that are applying for for visas and, and for refugee status, uh, identities are being sold uh, on the cheap. Uh, we have many reports of that. So uh, it's a dangerous world, Charlie. And I, I think uh, the President of the United States, I don't care from which, whatever party, uh, does have to have the power to keep this nation safe. Well, as you know, I mean, there, there have been 10 fatal attacks uh, tied to is, you know, Islamic extremists um, since 2001. And the people behind those attacks are from none of the banned countries. So isn't there a kind of a disconnect between the countries where we've had the travel ban and the, and the actual threat that, that America faces? Because you and I don't disagree that it's a dangerous world. It's just that, you know, does, does this ban actually address what the danger is? But I think the ban addresses the fact that these are, by and large, failed states, and they really don't have the capability of providing uh, assurances that the identities of the people that are applying for visas or, or necessarily refugee status, it's not cooperative. I mean, for example, Saudi Arabia is not on the list because they do a very good job of providing that information. They've got a, a strong government that can actually identify people. So I mean, it's far more tailored toward what nations can really provide us the, the information we need to make sure that we're not taking any risks letting people in this country. Uh, I want to switch, switch back to uh, the, the domestic politics and the issue of health care, because, of course, for our listeners, you really got into politics because of Obamacare. You had never run for public office before. You were a businessman in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And it was the issue of Obamacare that got you off the couch, got you into the race for U.S. Senate. It's something that you have been been very involved in. And, and now we are weeks away, potentially, from, from a vote. And um, the outcome is, is highly problematic, and you're attempting to do something that the Republican the Republicans have never actually done, uh, which is to repeal or roll back a major entitlement program. At this moment, Senator Johnson, do you think that Republicans will be able to repeal and replace Obamacare? I think the outcome is uncertain, and, and Charlie, I think you're aware of the fact that I really stopped using that terminology. Uh, pretty much the, the day that Obamacare became implemented or you know, was implemented, uh, I've been, I think, describing a process that's far more accurate in terms of what we need to do. Is, and I've been talking about repairing the damage done by Obamacare and transitioning to something that will actually work. Uh, the problem is we've had Obamacare now. It's been seven years since it's being passed. Uh, it started out about 380,000 words of a law, and it's morphed into about 20 million words of rules and regulations that have infiltrated every nook and cranny of our health insurance and health care provider markets. And you don't just do that with a simple bill, snap of the finger, repeal and replace, and all the damage is, is undone, and now we have a perfect system set up. So I, I think uh, in many respects 
Republicans have created an unrealistic expectation. I come from the business world. I always thought it's best to under-promise and over-deliver, not, not do the exact opposite of over-promise and under-deliver. And the, the challenge we're having right now in terms of the House bill is, first of all, I, I don't see enough uh, reforms that will actually bring down the premiums that, for example, in Wisconsin, on the individual market have literally doubled and tripled. I mean, there's one of the primary damages of Obamacare, together with the fact that people did lose their health care uh, plans that they liked, that they lost access to doctors they knew and trusted. There's a lot of harm done, that we, a lot of damage done that needs to be repaired. Uh, the House bill does some good things from a standpoint of uh, finally putting some caps on an out-of-control entitlement by Medicaid. Uh, I think it keeps eligibility open far too long. Uh, you know, we don't want to pull the rug out from anybody, but we also don't want to invite a whole lot more people to stand on that rug by the time we, we actually tap it. So I think th- those are the primary concerns of conservatives is you know, we're leaving that eligibility open and that we're really not addressing the premium costs uh, that we really want to see in law and not just completely rely on, on Tom Price in terms of what he can do as Secretary of Health and Human Services. Yeah, what was your reaction to the Congressional Budget Office score? There seems to be two different schools of thought. The administration saying it's basically, you know, fake news. It was it was bogus. Uh, Paul Ryan taking a more positive um, view of that. Uh, th- that that score says that you're going to have many, many Americans who might be without health coverage if, in fact, this bill passes, but that it would also reduce the deficit by $300 million. So your, your take on that, are you going to vote for a bill that would result in 20 million people not having health coverage? Well, Charlie, you know, I'm, I'm an accountant uh, by training, so I really do like having facts and figures, and there's been a real vacuum of information in this entire process. I think the CBO score is, is one piece of information. I mean, I, I can pick it apart. I mean, I have no idea why... They're, they're predicting that 5 million people would be dropped from Medicaid. It's a free program. Why would 5 million people drop off in the first year? So, you know, it, it's a projection. It's very hard to foretell the future. So you, you take that as a piece of information, and uh, you, you know, factor that into what your decision is. I'm far more focused myself on the actual language in the bill, and I'm looking for what is going to drive premium costs down on the individual market. What is going to start repairing the damages the harms done by Obamacare, and, and again, there's there's deficiencies in the bill from that standpoint. Well, you know, from from an outside point of view, the differences kind of seem ir- irreconcilable. In the House, you you have a, a group, you know, the Freedom Caucus that wants to make the bill more conservative. In the Senate, many of your colleagues, more moderate colleagues, um, would probably vote against it because they're concerned about uh, the the rollback of the of, of Medicaid. So, how how do you politically come up with a deal that would be acceptable to conservatives in the House? into moderates in the Senate? Or is this thing, is it going to run off the tracks? Well, I've been doing it by providing my colleagues with a lot of information. I, I, I took the, I don't know how many tables the CBO estimate came, you know, came with, you know, how many pages, but I converted that into one page to really lay it out for my colleagues. This is what's happening. You know, there's no doubt about it. We're reducing the subsidy under Obamacare. And, uh, yeah, but at the same time, we're increasing the number of people that are we're providing the subsidy. So there's going to be a real problem in terms of the construct of that bill. So I'm, tr- I'm trying to do with information, but it's a process. It's, it's not easy. As you pointed out, uh, when have we ever rolled back an entitlement, which is one of the reasons I, I never wanted to see Obamacare being implemented, because I knew we were going to have this exact problem, which is, again, why I, I kind of quit using the term repeal, replace, and you really talked about repairing the damage done and transitioning the system that works. So 
again, it's 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 going to be it's a process. Uh, uh, I think there's a fair amount of time pressure on this, which I think is somewhat unfortunate. I'd rather take the time and get this right, make sure that we we do honor the promise. Because a lot of us have said it. I, I agree with this. Let's not pull the rug out from under anyone. Now, understand it. If we cap Medicaid ex- expansion. We're not pulling the rug out from under anybody. There's a fair high amount of attrition rate there, which is kind of a good thing because you want people getting off welfare, going to work, and getting insurance from uh, employer plans, for example. So, you know, people mm-hmm. dropping off the rolls isn't all necessarily bad news. It all depends on what they're transitioning to. I, I know that a lot of our listeners are, are, are fascinated by the division among conservatives over over this legislation. And, of course, you, you saw what Heritage Action put out, uh, the Heritage Foundation. They, they actually said, in many ways, the House Republican proposal released last night, this was a week ago, not only accepts the flawed progressive premises of Obamacare, but expands upon them. Ronald Reagan once said, government's view of the economy could be summed up in a few short phrases. If it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. And if it stops moving, subsidize it. This Republican bill does all three. Do you agree with that? Well, there's certainly elements of truth to that. Uh, you know, from my standpoint, um, the subsidies are flowing. I, I don't personally see much of a difference between a subsidy and a check written by Health and Human Services versus a check written by the IRS, which is really mm. what the advanceable, uh, refundable uh, tax credit is. So if, if, you wanted to, if you want to equalize the treatment, which truthfully this bill does not do, if you want to equalize the tax treatment, you either don't let anybody exclude their health care coverage from taxes or you let everybody deduct it, you don't come up with a third way. And I, I personally would prefer taking uh, care of that discrepancy in our tax law through tax simplification. But it's been included in this law, as, as, as has been Medicaid reform, which is probably the, the, the biggest mm-hmm. benefit of this. Because when have we ever actually tried to put an entitlement program on a more sustainable uh, path, which is really what the House bill is doing with Medicaid, which is a good thing. Get states to quit gaming the system. Now, there's an awful lot of problems with Medicaid. There's studies out there that show that uh, you know, being on Medicaid, you have no better health results than not having any insurance whatsoever. So you've got, you've got a lot of problems with Medicaid. It's not exactly a, a program you want expanding without uh, being under control. But Pre- President Trump ran for office saying that he was not going to touch Medicare or Medicaid. He made it very, very clear that he was not going to touch any of the entitlement programs and that everybody would be covered. There would be universal coverage. So how can... How can this president reconcile his promises with what this legislation does right now? Well, I guess that's, again, in business, I always under-promised and over-delivered. <laughs> I guess that was probably an, an, over, an over-promise of what might be very difficult to deliver. Uh, you know, may, maybe sometimes people let their rhetoric get ahead of uh, really what their capabilities are. That, that has happened. Um, now, of course, uh, Democrats are pointing out that this is a massive tax cut, that, that, that the biggest winners of this legislation would be upper-income Americans who would no longer have to pay the Obamacare taxes, while poor Americans would be worse off because of the lower subsidies. So it's a reverse Robin Hood. When you go back and you talk to your constituents, how do you explain something that, that appears to be a radical transfer of wealth from middle-income, lower-income Americans to wealthier. That's the way it's being portrayed by the left. Well, again, with information. Uh, in, in my one pager, I kind of laid out all the different taxes that are part of Obamacare. Some of these directly increase the cost of your premiums. 
you, know, you have the health insurance tax. I mean, you certainly have the medical device tax, which pushes up the cost of health care. So I've identified four or five of these taxes that you know, directly affect the cost of health care or the affect the cost of your health insurance. Those absolutely should be repealed. But you're right. You know, the, the, other, the other tax increases, uh, I think, will be attacked as, as a tax cut for the rich, which is one of the reasons tax reform and tax simplification is always difficult because anytime you look at changing tax law, uh, you, you're going to affect the taxes paid by the top income groups because they're the ones that pay most of the income taxes. And so it, it makes tax simplification, tax reform incredibly difficult. And you know, when, when, you, when you throw elements of tax reform on trying to repair the damage of Obamacare, uh, you've just increased the political difficulty of trying to achieve it. Uh, when your colleagues, uh, says Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas, has said some of the same things you have said about the need to slow this down. But uh, earlier today, um, the, the White House press secretary, Sean Spicer, said this about this legislation. This is the only vehicle that seeks to achieve what people on our side of the aisle have been talking about since 2010. This is it. If we don't get this through, the goal of repealing Obamacare and instituting a system that will be patient-centered is going to be unbelievably difficult. This is the vehicle to do that. So if, in fact, this does not happen, and a lot lot of observers are are thinking that there's a possibility that you're not going to be able to pass this legislation, um, if if the GOP fails, do you own this? Do you own this failure? How bad will it be for uh, Republicans? First of all, it's already unbelievably difficult. And, you know, I I do reject that this is going to be our only chance, but obviously— uh, it is true in early in administration is where the big things actually get done. Uh, generally, because the president has got uh, a honeymoon period, this, this president has not had a honeymoon period. So I, I'm not sure that the path is going to be any more difficult uh, the further we, we go. Uh, and I would argue that if we have a better bill, one that uh, protects people, one, one that also is perceived as fair, one that actually, you know, you can actually see in the le- legislative language, this is what will drive the cost premiums down on the individual market, I would say would actually have a better chance of passing yeah. myself. So I'm just not, I'm not an alarmist here. Like, if we don't do this in two weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll lose our chance. I, I kind of reject that notion. Well, what about the idea of doing nothing? Because we're starting to hear this. Lindsey Graham made this suggestion. Uh, some, some people close to the president have made the suggestion. Don't do anything. Let Obamacare fail and then just basically reap the political advantages of blaming Democrats for that. Yeah, I've heard Lindsey privately. I'm not sure he said this publicly, but he, the strategy would be collapse and, yep. and, re, and, re, and replace. Uh, the the fact of the matter is, this is a mess created by President Obama and the Democrats. This is their mess. Okay. Uh, they're, they're sitting back right now. We, we, have, we, have to take, we have to take a break, and then when I want to come uh, back to this. I'm Charlie Sykes. My guest is Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. We're going to hear more from him and take more of your calls after the break. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. 
In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. This is Charlie Sykes, broadcasting from WNYC in New York. I'm joined by Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, chairman of the Senate Homeland Security Committee. We're also taking your calls on a variety of issues. Uh, our phone number is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Uh, Senator Johnson, so you're, you're, you're not a fan of the just letting it, uh, letting it collapse and, and pointing the fingers at, uh, at Democrats? No, I think we have responsibility. We, we were elected into office. We have the presidency. We have a majority in control of the House and majority in the Senate. And I think it's really incumbent on us to do everything we can to, again, repair the damage done. But it is also true that this is a mess created by the Democrats. They're sitting back with Chess- Cheshire cat grins on their face, enjoying this moment, which is pretty, pretty unfortunate, and partly, partly because we made the mistake right out of the block saying, well, we're going we're yeah. to have to jam this down their throats too using reconciliation, 51 votes. We should have been talking about the damage done, pointing out the fact you guys created this mess. mess. Help us fix it. Help us repair the damage and put political pressure. And, and who knows if we would have done a good job describing the, the damage, coming up with good solutions to repair the damage. Maybe we would have got Democrat support, but we, we rejected that right out of the blocks, which does kind of put the blame on us. If uh, we're not able to really come up with a pretty good solution here, when there are there really aren't a lot of really good solutions here, Charlie. That's part of the problem. Are you at all concerned that President Trump may bail on this? And the reason I'm asking this is, of course, you're seeing the the usual suspects, uh, Drudge, Breitbart, uh, uh, people like Sean Hannity referring to this as Ryan Care. You have close friends of the president suggesting that that he you know that he get out from you know the the, the toxic politics of of all of this. Are you concerned that in fact? Um, the president, you know, will, in fact, separate himself from that? And what would the consequences be politically if he did? Well, again, I think he admitted, as I just did, politically, maybe the best thing would be to do nothing, let it collapse, so the Democrats really would have to accept the blame here. But he also said, but we're not going to do that. I mean, we have this responsibility. That's why he is diving in. I was just at the White House uh, meeting with all the health care experts with about nine senators yesterday, and it was a really good discussion, a lot of really smart people. We are working hard in a very difficult process, trying to come up with solutions to, again, repair the damage done by Obamacare and set up, transition something that, to something that will work. Yeah. So, again, I think we all feel that responsibility, as does the president, so we're going to work hard to try and do just that. Yeah, since I just mentioned your colleague Lindsey Graham, uh, he also had this to say on, on another issue, the, the whole question of uh, the president's tweets about wiretapping. So what, am, what are we trying to do? <clears throat> the current president says that he believes that the former president, maybe not personally, but the former president through the government, surveilled his campaign in 2016. As a matter of fact, today they said they're extremely confident there was some kind of surveillance of the campaign. I have no evidence for that, but I can tell you this. That that question needs to be answered because I don't think it's ever been raised before. (laughs) And the bottom line is a lot of Americans are wondering what's going on here. So what I'm trying to do is get answers to the questions raised by President Trump. He's asking us to investigate, and we will. Senator Johnson, how aggressively should Congress investigate that question, but also more broadly, 
the allegations of Russian hacking into the election? Well, we just had a report from Richard Burr, who is chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, working with Mark Warner as his vice chair. And I can tell you those two individuals and the entire Intelligence Committee are taking this very seriously. They are working as quickly as they can, as hard as they can, together with their staff to get the answers across the board on all the questions that have been raised. Russian involvement, the leaks, the wiretaps, uh, you know, these charges, they're, they're going to get to the bottom of this. And they're doing it, I think, in a bipartisan fashion. If uh, Democrats don't think it's bipartisan, if they don't think it's a good enough investigation, uh, they will certainly point that out to the public. But right now, I'm, I'm here, I'm seeing a, a very cooperative bipartisan uh, basis because we all believe that Russia is a threat. They're, they're not our friend, unfortunately. They're an enemy. You know, I've held hearings in, in, as the chairman of the European Subcommittee of Foreign Relations in the last Congress about Russia's pervasive. Uh, propaganda disinformation campaigns, they're meddling, they're destabilizing efforts, the, the assassinations under Putin's regime. So uh, almost to a person in, in Congress, we are very wary of Russia, and we want to know exactly what Russia did as it relates to uh, trying to influence opinion here in America. So it, it's going to be a, a very robust investigation, and we'll get to the bottom of it. Okay, let's go, let's go to the phones. We have a call on uh, health care. Let's go to uh, Indianapolis. Bill from Indianapolis, you're on Indivisible with Senator Ron Johnson. Good evening. Good evening. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, throughout the, the debate, I've listened very carefully, and, and there's something that, that I keep wanting to ask. Uh, during my lifetime and my experiences with insurance companies, uh, they have not been all bad. But it is very clear that, you know, their business and their role is to make a profit. If they're not making a profit, their leaders lose their job. And when we talk about a patient-focused healthcare system, one of the things that concerns me is when we return care to the control of the care to the insurance companies, we're returning it to someone whose primary role is to make money, not to take care of people. If you're raising the price of soda, you know, some people may not be able to afford it, but they don't die. When you raise the price of health care, people's lives are at stake. So how do we square that? How do we find a way to make sure that, you know, the businesses are able to operate, but they're not doing so in a way that they're, you know, risking people's lives? Okay, so the question is about the role of profits in insurance company and and whether that works against quality health care. So let's just talk about facts. In 2015, the ways we have all the information, America spent about $3.2 trillion total on health care. Biggest expenditure, hospital care, then physician services. Net insurance, and this isn't even profit. This is just the net insurance. You know, money flowing into insurance companies for the administration, about $210 billion, not even 10%. Uh, So the profit of that then would be maybe 5% of that, 5-10% after tax. So the profit of the insurance companies in relationship to the $3.2 trillion spent in health care is almost negligible. So, listen, I realize in a current uh, political environment, people hate capitalist co- companies. They, they hate any business that's trying to make a profit, but it's the profit that actually drives innovation, better quality. It actually drives drug companies to, to innovate and create new drugs that actually cure diseases. So be very careful when you want to try and demonize the, the profit motive because it has driven the American economy to make it the marvel of, of the world in human history. Uh, so, it's, again, the, the profit in, in healthcare is, is negligible in terms of the other problems that are driving uh, really unsustainable cost inflation. Okay, let's go to uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. John from uh, Raleigh, you're on Indivisible with Senator Ron Johnson. Good evening. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure, Ron. Um, I just, I, I heard 
the senator used the word entitlement a couple times uh, as far as health care was going, and, and, and I just wanted to know what he means by that, in what capacity. I mean, are we talking about in a, a welfare-type capacity or um, <coughs> or, a, or a, like a Social Security? You know, I, I consider Social Security an entitlement because it's something I paid for. Yeah, what, what, um, when, you, when you use the term entitlement, which programs are you referring to? Senator Johnson, if, yeah. if, if you're asking me, yeah. you know, Social Security is something that people paid into. And by the way, in 2010, we passed a Rubicon that what you paid into Social Security, you probably will not get out on average. Hmm. But Medicare, for example, for every dollar you pay into the payroll tax, you're going to get about $3 worth of benefits. So two-thirds of that would be kind of a welfare type of entitlement. Medicaid, the people that get Medicaid, they're, they're paying nothing in that system. That is funded by American taxpayers and then given to people through an entitlement program called Medicaid free health care. So that is what I, that's my definition of a true entitlement. Uh, let's uh, go to, let's go back to Indiana. Uh, Melissa from Noblesville, Indiana, you're on Indivisible. Good evening. Good evening. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, yes, I'm just concerned that um, the, the senator sounds um, a very common sense approach and business approach, but um, when you're talking about the most vulnerable, uh, such as children, and I think there's like a very high percentage of children that are part of Medicaid, I think I've heard like 40%, um, they don't have a voice in the situation, and their caregivers are tasked with uh, helping them out. And these cuts to Medicaid are going to be very detrimental, as well as cutting uh, women's reproductive health care with Planned Parenthood in rural areas especially, and um, not well, having contraceptives here. Let's focus on Medicaid. Yeah, let's focus on, on, on Medicaid. Well, let, let's, let's focus on, on, I think the question is, will this impact um, health care for children? Senator Johnson. Well, first of all, the, the Medicaid expansion primarily went to able-bodied poor. You know, Medicaid in general goes to disabled and, and women and children, uh, so Medicaid was really pretty much unaffected except for the Medicaid expansion by Obamacare. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is it's, it's there are programs that are, by and large, participated in by the states, uh, but really governed by dictates out of the federal government. And so the federal government is not particularly efficient in the way they dictate the management of Medicaid. And I think the whole point of the solution long-term in terms of our healthcare system is, first of all, connecting consumers of the product with the payment of the product, but also pushing the regulation of healthcare, including Medicaid, back down to the mm-hmm. states. States aren't perfect, but they do a better job than the federal government creating a, a one-size-fits-all model. I mean, again, just take a look. Obamacare was, remember, is supposed to protect patients and be affordable. Well, millions of Americans lost their healthcare plans. Premiums in Wisconsin on the individual market have doubled and tripled. It's not affordable. People are taking because they can't afford the insurance. And what insurance they have, deductibles and coinsurance is so high, they still can't even access the care. So Obamacare has not worked, and we have to be honest about that. So we're trying to come up with a system that, that actually will work to restrain costs, provide better access and better quality. Well, we have to leave it there for now. Uh, Ron Johnson is a senator from Wisconsin, chairman of the Senate Homeland Security Committee. Senator Johnson, uh, again, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Indivisible. Uh, Somewhat different environment than the last time you and I spoke. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you and your new gig here. All right. Thanks a lot, Senator Johnson. 
Well, we're going to switch gears now. Uh, Connor Friedersdorf is a staff writer at The Atlantic who covers politics and national affairs. Uh, and uh, by the way, our phone number is 844-745-TALK. Uh, he joins us now via Skype. Uh, good evening, Connor. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. Well, first of all, I, I want to I tell you that I'm, I'm very, very grateful for a couple of things you wrote, including a piece that uh, you wrote uh, back in uh, February for The Atlantic called How Conservatives Can Save America, because it was I was finishing up work on my book about uh, how the right lost its mind. And, and I know that you've been thinking about these things. And you you actually made a point that I'm not sure that I've seen anyone else make, which is that that a lot of people don't understand who conservatives are and and maybe the the potential they have in this particular moment and your 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 piece begins if properly understood and marshaled conservatives actually can be a liberal democracy's strongest bulwark against the dangers posed by intolerant social movements so i really want to start right there you write unfortunately few people properly understand conservatives in fact many erroneously conflate them with authoritarians and that is a very dangerous mistake. What did you mean? Well, I want to credit this insight to Karen Stenner, who wrote a book back in 2005 about the things that tear societies apart. And she created this really useful taxonomy for understanding our situation right now. Um, basically, she talked about authoritarians, which in this taxonomy is people who are really averse to difference. They prefer sameness and unity, and they have a perhaps innate discomfort with people that are different, with ideas that are different. This just makes them uncomfortable. Like the alt-right, the, uh, the, the Richard the Spencers would, of the world. Richard Spencer would certainly be an example, but mm -hmm. you know, it, it might also be someone who is averse to differences of political opinion, or at sometimes in history, it would be people who were averse to atheists or Catholics, mm -hmm. or it, it really has to do with anything that they perceive as different more than Richard Spencer, who is antagonistic, uh, specifically as a white supremacist. Yeah. Um, now, of course, these authoritarians, uh, their aversion to difference often leads them to uh, what we think of as racism. Uh, on the other hand, conservatives, um, in this taxonomy, they're not people who are averse to difference. Uh, they're people who are really defined by two things in the United States. Uh, they're averse to government intervention, and they're averse to change. They, uh, they're Burkeans. They have mm -hmm. a desire to protect the status quo. And these two attributes sometimes lead them to cooperate with the people that we think of as authoritarians. Uh, if you think back, the classic example is during the civil rights era. Mm -hmm. You had authoritarians in the South who were averse to difference. And this is why they uh, did not want civil rights for uh, black people. And then you had Western conservatives like Barry Goldwater, um, who allied with these people because he was concerned about the federal government intervening uh, in a way that he didn't want. Uh, you had someone like William Buckley in the Northeast who w was against the civil rights movement because he wanted to protect the status quo. Uh, so, so conservatives can go down the wrong road uh, because of their commitments. But there are other times when they can go down the right road. And so if you think of the United States as a place that has, at this point, a long tradition of uh, protecting religious minorities, for example, and regarding them as equals, and then you think of George W. Bush after 9-11, um, you could think of his remarks about how we weren't in a war against Muslims and we needed to be tolerant toward that religion as protecting the small-l liberal status quo. And so that was an instance where his conservatism 
pushed him in what I think of as a good direction. Let me read you a quote because you, you uh, and, and by the way, I also want to thank you for you know, letting, introducing me to Karen Stenner's book, which is fascinating. She says, it is no secret that liberal democracy is most secure when individual freedom and diversity are pursued in a relatively orderly fashion, in a well-established institutional framework, under responsible leadership, within the bounds set, set by entrenched and consensually accepted rules of the game. Such stable diversity should be acceptable to conservatives, but abhorrent to authoritarians. On the other hand, the prospect of some wholesale overthrow of the system in pursuit of greater unity should be appealing, even exciting to authoritarians, but appalling to conservatives. Liberal democracy, and here's like the key line, I think, liberal democracy would seem least secure when conservatives cannot be persuaded that freedom and diversity are authoritatively supported and institutionally constrained, and when authoritarians can be persuaded that greater sameness and oneness, the one right way for the one true people, lie at the other end of the shining path. And then you make the point, isn't that what just happened in this last election? Yes. If you think of Donald Trump and his inauguration and many of his campaign speeches, uh, really what he has promised is we're going to be unified and there's this shining path. And if we just follow him down it, uh, only he can bring us to this magical place where uh, we will all be united. And uh, of course, the, the fact of the matter is that Donald Trump is not only failing to unite the country uh, by every objective measure, um, but, but no one can unite the country. We're a diverse uh, place of 300 million people. We all have the freedom to speak our minds. We have different predispositions and beliefs and backgrounds. And so uh, unity is literally an impossible thing that will never be brought about. Well, you and I approach this from different ideological points of view, but I think we were both surprised, maybe even shocked by the willingness of some of the more traditional libertarian conservatives to embrace this. But I do think uh, your your piece then has some theories about it, which I want to get to after the break. We do have a short break. You're listening to Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Charlie Sykes, and my guest is Atlantic staff writer Connor Friedersdorf, who has written just a fascinating story about the difference between conservatives and authoritarians and maybe the possible common ground between left and right in this era. More after the break. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. This is Charlie Sykes broadcasting from WNYC in New York. We're talking with Atlantic staff writer Connor Friedersdorf about his article, How Conservatives Can Save America. We've posted a link to it on our show page at indivisibleradio.com. Um, one thing that really struck me about your piece was you, you point out that 
you know, a lot of people don't understand, and I found this as well, uh, don't understand that being a conservative, believing in limited government, uh, individual freedom, maybe an aversion to radical change, uh, does not necessarily mean that you're a racist or that you're an authoritarian, but they're easily conflated. And this is a point that Karen Stenner makes in her book as, as well, that confusing the two then also m- might lead people not to recognize the possibility that there would be some common ground. Absolutely. It's important with regard to American politics right now to understand that there are actually very deep divisions in the right of center coalition, even in the people who voted for Donald Trump and certainly in the Republican Party. And if you can see the distinctions, if you can see the points of tension uh, between them, among them, then uh, you can perhaps capture some of them into a different coalition and push the country in a different direction. You know, I'm trying to imagine a Venn diagram between left and right in America today, and there's not a lot of overlap at all. But there is some overlap, and and the overlap is incredibly important. So I actually want to throw this out to the audience, 844-745-TALK. In that Venn diagram, what is that common ground? What is the what is the one area where you might be able to agree? And and maybe it will be this concept of, all right, let's restrain the power of the executive. Maybe we can accept, you know, orderly d- diversity. But I want to go back to your theory and, and Karen Stenner's uh, theory about why conservatives were willing to embrace, in, in other countries, embrace authoritarian regimes, in this country embrace Donald Trump, you know, despite the sort of unnatural nature nature of, of that relationship. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that conservatives can be the bulwark of liberal democracy as long as they think that the rules are going to be respected that in fact that there is going to be an orderly transition and this year they didn't believe that did they last year uh, no they didn't there were a bunch of different things about the obama administration about the democratic party's priorities and about hillary clinton where they felt uh oh no the brakes are off of the pace of change and Immigration is, of course, one example of this, where you have some people that are averse to immigration because they just want America to be white. It's the sort of uh, racist faction that Mm -hmm. is against immigration. But then you have this other faction of people who are against immigration uh, who are perfectly fine with even relatively large amounts of legal immigration, uh, but they're alarmed by the idea of immigration without breaks. And so they look to something like Angela Merkel Uh, letting in Syrian refugees in an emergency and for understandable reasons, but without limit. And they think to themselves, oh, wow, that's a rapid shift in. That was was a a powerful image. That was a powerful image. You know, uh, throughout the year, one of the phrases that kept coming to my mind was that conservatives regarded um, the the Obama administration and and the left as moving at ramming speed, that that a lot of conservatives were willing to accept many of the changes, including, for example, um, I think kind of remarkably uh, widespread acceptance of gay marriage, but it was not enough. And things kept moving so rapidly that it created that sense that that things, you know, that the center would not hold, that things... We we see that... Yes. We we see this in terms of Supreme Court jurisprudence as well. Um, It's it's a subject area that's much more complicated than people who think of originalism and people who think of a living, breathing constitution. I think that that dichotomy is false in some ways. But at the same time, you see people on the right saying, no, we need to adhere to the original meaning. We can't just have uh, a living constitution that would seem to go in any direction. And the left, I think, hasn't been effective at articulating 
well, okay, even if we are not necessarily originalists, uh, surely we have some idea of breaks on the amount of change that the Supreme Court can do to the Constitution. So how could we maybe reassure people who fear that there are no breaks on change and say, uh, look, we may disagree with originalists, but at the same time, uh, there are some limits to the rapid change that we're going to foist upon the nation through judicial rulings. You, you, you point out three possible conditions for conservatives to, you know, not, not, not feel uh, quite so insecure. You know, authoritative reminders, the tolerance and respect for difference are privileged ideas in our national tradition. I think that there's a consensus, should be a consensus on that. Reassurances regarding established breaks on the pace of change and the settled rules of the game to which all will adhere, and confidence in the leaders in institutions managing social conflict and regulating the extent and rate of social change. Now, I agree with all of that. It's very Burkean. But I'm watching the the Democratic Party right now, a lot of the activists on the left, and I don't get the sense that their response to Trumpism is to slow down or moderate the pace of change, it certainly looks like the Democrats are going to double down on their agenda. What, what is your sense, Connor? Well, I think that there is always this temptation. If, if we think of another taxonomy of American politics and we think of small L liberalism and, and then we think of illiberalism, mm-hmm. there's this illiberal faction within the Trump coalition. And I think it brings out the illiberal faction in on, on the left. You've seen this at different times in history. If you look back to uh, the Spanish Civil War, say, you have illiberalisms on each sides that kind of um, elicit responses from one another. And so I, I think that the left coalition is actually divided. There are some parts of it that are saying, look, um, we see Donald Trump was elected, and perhaps we could respond to this in certain ways that would reassure uh, conservatives. For example, uh, federalism is one way that the American system has for putting the brakes on change. And some on the left are starting to recognize, uh, well, look, Trump is in power. Wouldn't it be good if we adhered to federalism? Uh, we would like the outcome on something like marijuana laws, right? Uh, e- even though the right might like the outcome better on something like um, transgender bathroom policy and whether that's going to come down from state or federal governments. And so I-, I do think that some on the left are starting to see uh, these grounds for reassurance that even benefit them on some policy issues. Yeah, and as you you conclude, status quo, well, actually, you quote Karen Stenner, status quo conservatives, if properly understood and marshaled, can be a liberal democracy's strongest bulwark against the dangers posed by intolerant social movements. And then you also point out that some conservatives have already undertaken that project. But, um, you know, the, 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 the point of your article is that some conservatives can save America. But then, of course, we have... You know, we're kind of waiting around for people to take a stand. And, of course, uh, this week we got the audio again of Paul Ryan from last October. I am not going to defend Donald Trump. Not now, not in the future. Yeah, what, what, do, you, what, what do you make of uh, Paul Ryan's uh, stand right now? Because he would certainly be one of the leaders of the, of the libertarian, small government, constitutional wing of the party. And yet right now, for the moment, he's completely allied with Donald Trump. Uh, well, it gets very confusing very fast when you talk about <laughs> Paul Ryan. I, I think certainly he isn't someone who's consistently stood on principle. Um, wh- when it comes to the subject of health care, I suspect that Paul Ryan uh, – I, I suspect that Donald Trump has more in common with the left on health care than Paul Ryan mm-hmm. does, that Paul Ryan is trying to push through a bill that really severely limits um, – the role of the federal government more severely than, than Trump cares to. And so you have actually this interesting tension 
even among conservatives, right? If the two things that conservatives are worried about are an aversion to government intervention and an aversion to change, um, you can't have both of those things on healthcare right now. Uh, it's going to be a very radical change if you limit the federal government's role in healthcare to the extent that Paul Ryan wants to. And so there are really multiple ways that this, this is, I I think going to tear apart the Republican coalition, actually. I I I think you're right about this. Now, here's a question that I have wrestled with for some time now. Do you think that Donald Trump is a logical continuum of the direction that the conservative movement in America was going, or was he a radical discontinuity? Well, he was a discontinuity as far as conservative orthodoxy on economic policy, on matters like free trade, for example. And he was continuous, I think, uh, insofar as the right and especially the talk radio right, the media right, the web right, sites like Breitbart have been verging more and more toward populism over the years. Uh, we saw a glimpse of this with Sarah Palin. Uh, we, we've seen it for years from Rush Limbaugh, where they're not motivated by a positive vision of what the United States should be so much as indignance and a desire to lash out against liberals, against the Washington establishment. Um, they're, uh, they have grievances against these things and those grievances and articulating those grievances uh, I think drive that part of the base a lot more than any coherent positive vision. I actually think you're right about that because from, from, from my point of view, I originally started off uh, thinking that it was a radical discontinuity, that it was kind of a black swan event, that this was a hostile takeover. But the more I thought about it, you go back, you you play the tape back, and, and, and you begin to realize, okay, well, you know, you do have these angry voices out there. You were playing to all of these things. And, and and when Donald Trump showed up, he really was, and I say this as a former, you know, conservative talk show host, you know, he was the, the first, you know, sort of, you know, first-time candidate, uh, you know, of, you know, first, first-time caller um, talk radio candidate, very much a creature of that conservative media ecosystem. And maybe, do you think that that's one of the reasons why you did have that conservative media ecosystem so willing to embrace him, even though he was not an orthodox conservative? Oh, oh, I think so. And, and, you know, partly because there is no one, as Donald Trump will remind you repeatedly, there is no one better for ratings, especially in that ecosystem, than Donald Trump. Uh, You know, you can fire up web hits and, and uh, and cable TV ratings with Donald Trump in a way that no one else can. And, and that's ultimately what a lot of talk radio uh, is about. It's a lot of what Breitbart is about. It's a, a profit-driven enterprise that is seizing on its portion of the market and, uh, and doing all it can to juice that portion of the market. Yeah. Do you, do, you, do you have an operative theory why the Rush Limbaugh's of the world decided to go with Donald Trump when they had all sorts of other alternatives like Ted Cruz? I mean, why not Ted Cruz? Why, why not Marco Rubio? Why do you think they made that decision? You know, I'm not sure that someone like Rush Limbaugh, who I think has lost relative influence on the right over the years, could have stopped Donald Trump even if he had wanted to. Um, it, at the same time, you know, I think over the years, Rush Limbaugh has shifted from someone who had pretty orthodox conservative views and was uh, all about movement conservatism to someone who is really more anti-left than he is yes. conservative. And as you've seen this shift taken place over the years, it, it sort of makes sense that he would gravitate toward a Palin and then a Trump insofar as they're the most anti 
left candidates that you could get in their rhetoric, not in necessarily the substance of Donald Trump's views, but they were sticking it to the elites. They were sticking it to the media in a way that Rush Limbaugh just loved. I, I, I think you put your finger on a lot of what's been going on on, on, on my, my side of the aisle, which is that I think conservatism became anti-leftism more than, you know, a, a coherent governing philosophy, which I, which I think you're seeing playing out uh, right now. Let, let's go to the phones, because I did ask this question of, you know, in this Venn diagram, what would be the common ground, if if any? Let's go to uh, Queens. Bronwyn from uh, Queens. You're on Indivisible. Good evening. Good evening. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, so in the Venn diagram between liberals and conservatives, what, what, what occurs to me is that everybody, at least most people, believe in the rule of law. But the problem is what that, how we define rule of law has become so contested. So I think of Justice Kennedy and Boumediene saying that um, the laws in the Constitution are designed to survive and remain in force in extraordinary times, fine, I think everybody can get behind that. But what does that actually look like in practice, and why do we have so much trouble sketching out a vision of that that we can all agree on? That's my question. That is an excellent question, and, and you, you made reference, uh, Connor, to the, the upcoming debate over uh, Supreme Court justices in, in, in the context of, of your piece. Yes. Uh, you know, it, it, it's certainly it's certainly a challenge for the left and the right to agree on Supreme Court justices. Um, I, I think executive orders are actually a, another lens through which to view this. It was very hard for a candidate like Hillary Clinton following the Obama administration to argue that she had a commitment to the rule of law when the Democratic coalition was so determined to push its agenda through executive orders mm -hmm. that kind of stretched the limits, right? Uh, you could say the same thing about something like the war in Libya and whether it was justified under the War Powers Act. It really pushed the limits with kind of very legalistic and I would argue ultimately um, illegal policies. And of course, George W. Bush did the same thing after 9-11, really pushed the limits in a lot of ways. And here we have Donald Trump uh, again who was doing the same thing. And so... Um, I think that the rise of executive power as opposed to things going more through Congress has exacerbated this tendency for the executive to try and just do whatever they can get away with without pushback. Uh, I think that maybe one way to ratchet these things back down would be if Congress would just assert itself more. I agree. And yeah. so you would have lawmaking going through the legislature and them really jealously guarding uh, legislative power against the executive in the way that the framers intended, instead of kind of letting the executive get away with lawlessness, I think. I, I, and I, I agree. I, I think you're really putting your finger on something there, because that was really kind of the, the you know, ramming speed. And I could, I could sense the sort of the radicalization of, of, the, of the divisions that were going on as, as people began to think this is a binary choice. Everything is at stake because, you know, it's, it's, it is winner take all. And I think that whole executive order culture fed into that. Okay, let's go to uh, St. Louis, Louis, Missouri. Uh, Noel, you are on Indivisible. Good evening. Hi. Um, so I'm sorry, it's I Noel, actually, right? It's uh, I read uh, yes. Noel, I'm sorry. It's actually my middle name. I'm afraid okay. to get my name on the radio. Okay. Um, but uh, so I had an issue with the way that the book, because I had to read it for a class, um, and I enjoyed it, even though I thought that some of its definitions were like overly simplistic, like authoritarianism. Um, but I 
didn't like her thesis that conservatives would accept change and progress within existing institutions, and at the same time, we could not call them racist. And the reason for that is, is that so often we say that racism is uh, personal prejudices that we um, let color our behavior and actions. But in fact, racism is the perpetuation of um, institutions and systems that are used to exclude people from power. Okay, so this is, so this is the key, whether or not a conservative who doesn't want to have social change is in fact a racist. Karen Stenner challenges that. Connor Friedersdorf, uh, we of course have dealt with this. So are, are conservatives who just don't want a rapid pace of change, are they necessarily racist? Well, I think this is actually just easy to semantically distinguish, right? We we can we we could certainly say that a conservative who favors a certain position, um, that position might very well contribute to a system that leaves, say, um, African Americans or Hispanic Americans disadvantaged, right? And so we could say that the effects of that are racist, and you know, feeds into the system of systemic racism. Uh, that doesn't tell us anything about the motivations of the conservative who voted for that policy, mm -hmm. right? Some of them might be motivated, in fact, by animus toward black people or by a, an idea that uh, a certain racial group is inferior. But others might be motivated by something entirely different, even if what they do has a pernicious effect. And so if we can distinguish between the two things and the two motivations, uh, that's important for figuring right. out how to persuade that conservative to take another course. Exactly. It's not to excuse racism. Right. It's to say it's just important to rigorously understand their motivations. And maybe it would help if you actually we talked with one another and talked about all of these things. You know, Connor, you and I could have this conversation for hours. I really appreciate it. But that's all for tonight, tomorrow night. Thursday night host Carrie Miller of Minnesota Public Radio looks at the protest culture in America and what it does to and for our identity and our democracy. Until then, you can keep the conversation going at IndivisibleRadio.com where you can leave us a comment or a voicemail anytime. I'm Charlie Sykes, and assuming that we're all still here, I will see you next Wednesday. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.